Right, thank you very much for coming um, this evening. And we have uh, two things to do, to do this evening. The first is we're here to celebrate, uh, to promote the launch of a new publication in, from the Ideas Think Tank. Uh, it's the Arab, uh, after the Arab Spring, power shifts in the Middle East, question mark. Uh, apart from the fact that I have two chapters in that, it's an excellent publication beyond that. I'm Toby Dodge, by the way, a reader in international relations here at the London School of Economics. But I think beyond celebrating this, what we wanted to do was bring together three of the foremost experts, albeit from different um, intellectual pursuits, to discuss, I think, one of the burning issues in the aftermath of the Arab Spring. Where quite does Iran stand within the region? And what are its two most antagonistic states, Israel and the United States? How are they going to interact with it? And I think we're extremely lucky to have, I mean, three it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say world-renowned uh, experts of different ages and seniorities, I could say that. Um, but firstly, Dr. Amnon Aran, from, he's a senior lecturer in City University, has just published with my colleague an excellent book on foreign policy analysis, which I recommend to you all. And before that, Israel's foreign policy towards the PLO. Then we have um, Roger Cohen, a columnist with the New York Times International Herald Tribune. I think it's probably known to all of you for his, I think, trenchant but perspective columns, and indeed, I think, more interestingly for tonight, his reporting from six weeks in Iran during uh, the Green Revolution. He's currently finishing a family memoir, which I await with, uh, with interest. And, and last but certainly not least, probably my oldest friend on the platform, Professor Nushet Tashami, who's a professor, director of the al Sabah program and joint director of the ESSC Center for the Advanced Study of the Arab World in the School of Government and International Affairs at Durham University, has written widely and very perceptively on Iranian foreign policy. So I think the plan this evening is for each of them to take 10 and at a push 15 minutes to outline the position of their states, Iran for Anoush, um, Israel for Amnon and the United States for Roger and then see how the Arab Spring has transformed that position, put them in pressure, where the relationship with these three states to the wider Middle East and the United States is going. And then after 10 to 15 minutes of each, we'll throw it open to questions and we'll take the, rather, because I know these gentlemen can range across the whole of the region, we'll take the constraints off their focus and we'll get into the discussion. So first, uh, Amnon, please, if you want to take 10 to 15 minutes at the podium. All right, thank you. Oh, and just to say, this is, is for sale for five pounds outside, so I'd rush out after the speakers have finished to get your copy. Okay, thank you very much, Toby, for that introduction, and thank you all very much for coming this evening. Um, what I would like to sort of argue in the next 15 minutes is that I think there is a, a power shift underway in the Middle East that is the outcome, really, of trends over the past 20 years, and not merely... Um, the product of the Arab uprisings. Um, to understand this shift, I'm going to sort of step back for a moment, look at the Israeli decision, probably one of the most important ones in the past 20 years, and namely to embark upon the Oslo process, um, i.e. negotiations with the Palestinian um, Liberation Organization, and then I'll fast forward a bit and come back um, to the contemporary scene. Um, if you look at this decision, um, it was very much informed by the perception of the then Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and his Foreign Minister Shimon Peres, um, that Israel really emerged out of the Cold War in an unprecedentedly um, strong strategic position. The Cold War ended with the collapse of the Soviet Union, which supported um, 
Israel's foes, some of them, such as Syria, to a lesser extent, certainly um, the PLO. Whilst obviously the, the US emerged um, as the world's uh, sole uh, superpower at the time. Um, following that, the expulsion of uh, Iraqi forces from uh, Kuwait by a US-led coalition really exposed profound divisions within the Arab world. And following that, the imposition of the policy of dual containment on Iran and Iraq diminished quite significantly the prospect that worried the Israelis um, of a invasion of Israel from the east by a coalition of um, Arab um, armies. Now, in addition to that, Peres and Rabin felt that there was quite a significant increase in Israeli state capacity. Israel had just emerged at the time from a very successful economic restructuring. That was followed by an influx of uh, immigrants from the former Soviet Union. Um, and the combination of this was really seen as sort of buttressing the political, the military, the economic, um, the social, and of course, the economic foundations of Israeli power. Now, at the same time, um, Beres and Rabin were very aware of three counter-trends, which they thought rendered this rather improved strategic Israeli position um, temporary. One was the visible emergence of political Islam as one of the most, if not the most powerful streams in Arab politics, which was giving rise to elites which were less disposed than their Arab secular counterparts to solve the Israeli-Arab conflict um, through political dialogue. Another was the prospect of the Middle East entering um, in the foreseeable future into a nuclear race, ending the Israeli Defense Forces military supremacy in the region, and potentially even posing an existential threat to Israel, a country that does not exactly enjoy great strategic depth. Um, the third trend, which was not less important, was the potential long-term weakening of Israeli state capacity. Um, especially due to the increasingly adverse demographic trends between Israeli Jews and Palestinians um, living between the Mediterranean and the River Jordan. Um, unless the um, Israeli occupation were to be dismantled in the early 90s, Rabin and Peres were convinced that the number of Palestinians would, would eventually be greater than the number of Jews, which would essentially eliminate Israel's ability to remain a Jewish and democratic state. So the conclusion that they reached was that the most effective way really, it was rather grudgingly reached but nonetheless reached, the most effective way to deal with these multiple challenges would be by ending the Arab-Israeli conflict through peace with the PLO. Um, and the alternative, if that was not to happen, was that Israel would have to deal really um, with conflict with the Arab world, um, with a potentially nuclear Middle East, from a substantially um, inferior position. So I'd say that a provisional, if you like, evaluation of the contemporary Middle East would suggest that Rabin and Peres were vindicated. Um, take Egypt, for example, which under President Hosni Mubarak um, cooperated quite closely with Israel on the intergovernmental level, especially since 2004. Um, elected recently a parliament controlled by the Muslim Brotherhood and Salafi movements. Now, obviously, the Muslim Brotherhood leaders and even the Salafis have expressed their commitment to the Camp David agreements, but nonetheless, Israel cannot expect from Egypt the kind of support that it received from Mubarak, for example, in imposing the siege over the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, 
um, for instance, in its war against Hezbollah in 2006 in the form of the supply of natural gas and so on um, and so forth. Now, concurrently, the strategic position of Israel's most dangerous adversary in the region, um, Iran, is much stronger than it was 20 years ago, and I'm sure um, Anush will discuss this in far greater length. Um, Iran's longtime foe in the Gulf, um, a Sunni-led Arab Iraq, has effectively been dismantled by the U.S. in the 2003 invasion, and according at least to the International Atomic Energy Agency and several Western, at least, um, intelligence agencies, Iran is making progress towards being able to um, produce um, uh, nuclear weapons capabilities, though a decision apparently has not necessarily been made to pursue that um, direction. Now, these sort of regional challenges, Iran's improved strategic position, the um, provisional results of the Arab uprisings, are compounded by the domestic trends within Israel. Um, the number of Palestinians um, between the Mediterranean and the River Jordan continues to grow in a greater rate than Israeli Jews. But to that, it has been added also that within Israeli society, there are certain trends that were not even foreseen by Rabin and Perez. Um, and these trends primarily are concerned with uh, ultra-Orthodox, the um, least productive sectors of the Israeli economy, um, also growing very rapidly in relation to secular Jews, the sector that contributes most to Israeli economy um, and security. Now, are these trends reversible? I, I suppose that is the next question I'd like to, to address. Um, due to mounting pressure, Iran, of course, might... Um, ultimately decide not to cross the threshold necessary to develop nuclear weapons. But given the past um, and the fact that Iran has not been deterred um, in its nuclear developments by international pressure, by sabotage, by the prospect of regime change at least until 2003, um, I think it's unlikely that, that this will happen. Um, one result, of course, could be a military strike on Iran, but anybody who's been attuned to the news in the past week knows that even the former chiefs of the Israeli security agency, the Mossad and the Shabak, think that an attack on Iran would not be wise and that the impact on its program would be very limited um, um, and in fact could actually create the reverse effect, i.e. the Iranians trying to pursue their program much more effectively and much more um, quickly. Um, in relation to the Arab uprisings, again, I think that it is unlikely that the sort of elements associated with political Islam, especially those that were um, banned legally from participating in politics in their respective countries for so long, would somehow um, now lose um, their uh, impact. And, and it seems to me to be reasonable that actually their influence, certainly in relation to the past, will, <clears throat> will undoubtedly um, rise. Um, can the U.S. ensure Israel's strategic um, position? Israeli politicians and American politicians speak often about the unshakable bond between the two countries. <coughs> but I think that even here there are other trends that put that commitment in question. The economic crisis and the debacle in Iraq has made the Americans much more reluctant to act internationally, and specifically in the Middle East. 
But beyond that, it seems to me that there is also a trend in American public opinion, at least within the sort of liberal circles of the Democratic Party. Take, for example, somebody like Thomas Friedman, a senior columnist in the New York Times, who's been extremely critical about the utility of Israeli policies, especially vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians, and has expressed these reservations in a much sort of more robust and critical manner than you would have imagined 10 or 15 years ago. What about trends within Israel? Well, here, of course, the burden of the non-productive sector upon society has resulted last summer in the most uh, wide-scale protests against social issues that the country has ever seen. But whether these protests will translate into a political force that can actually transform the agenda or the parliamentary agenda of Israeli politics is still very much yet um, to be seen. So in conclusion, what I'd really say is that although changes are still possible, Israel's position in the region is certainly weaker than it was when it embarked upon the Oslo process. US posture and commitments towards Israel has weakened. The opportunity to end the Arab-Israeli conflict on a pragmatic compromise with secular Arabs has been missed. The Middle East is far closer to a nuclear race than it was in the 1990s, with Iran being the main beneficiary of this and the main beneficiary of the 2003 invasion of Iraq. And compounding all of that, domestic trends within Israel pose a threat to its state capacity. And therefore, I think, in conclusion, other things being equal, of course, perhaps the best Israel can hope for is managing of its ongoing conflicts in the region rather than the setting of the agenda from the enhanced sort of strategic position that Rabin and Perez hoped to maintain through their policies. Thank you. Thank you. Good evening. Toby, thank you very much for the invitation also to Ideas and Yaniv, also to all your support as well. The last time I spoke here, I should say, was in the immediate, immediate aftermath of 9-11. And as I remember, late Fred Halliday, uh, we, we sat on this same platform then talking about the curse of authoritarianism in the Arab world and how it affects world politics. Here we are. More, more than a decade later, we're talking about the curse of democracy in the Arab world <laughs> uh, and how it continues to affect the strategic map um, of, of the region and also beyond it. Uh, Toby, I'm, I'm grateful to you for the invitation and also <coughs> the chance to talk about Iran in the context of the Arab, Arab Spring. I, I too, like Amnon, will take a, a broad brush, uh, go at this, but obviously in Q&A we can, we can drill down to all sorts of specific issues. Now, to understand Iran's position, in the Arab Spring, you've got to go back, not just to 1979, but I will start from there, uh, so as not to give you a heart attack, but also to do a comparison of 79 and 2009 as the really important issues. And let's do that in the context of the domestic context, but also more widely the regional context. Domestically, on the eve of the 11th of June 2009, Roger will remember the occasion well, as, as, as uh, that was the Iran elections. Iran was very confident it was victorious uh, in Lebanon, having come out of the, the crisis there. Uh, it was steadfast in its nuclear negotiations, not giving an inch. 
It was dominant in Iraq, obviously. It was influential in Afghanistan. It had influence in the Levant. And it was obviously also the champion of the so-called resistance front that seemed to have brought the radical forces uh, coalescing around it. It was Israel's strategic rival in the region. It saw itself in those terms. Israel saw it in those terms. The rest of the region saw it in those terms. It was militarily robust and it was able to demonstrate major scientific achievements around its, its nuclear uh, technological developments and also beyond it uh, as well. So it was politically vibrant, it was enjoying the benefits of its unique model of pluralistic and legitimate system of government, still reliant on religion, but somehow combining it with uh, bread and butter democratic um, principles as well. Iran, every reporter on the 11th of June saw on the cusp of a major transition towards a much, much greater uh, achievements. On the 13th of June, day after the elections, things were somewhat different. There were allegations of electoral fraud. Um, there were mass protests in most Iranian cities. Tehran saw biggest demonstrations that it had seen since 1979. Um, there was birth of the first indigenous opposition movement coming from within the cells of the Islamic regime itself. There were deepening political factions. There was a paralysis at policy level. The country was highly securitized and it was in effect uh, turning into a police state. And yet it had a highly uh, networked and digitally savvy uh, mobilized population, as we saw again in the aftermath of the elections, um, and, and the Iranian people began to sit very much uncomfortably against their own state. Regionally also, again winding back, post-Iraq war, as you yourself have written so widely about, Toby, um, uh, after Iraq, uh, the overthrow of Saddam Hussein, effectively Iraq became one of Iran's most important spheres of influence and it remains so to this day. Loss of Iraq has been really profoundly important to the strategic structures of the Arab world and in which, the way in which the Arab states uh, function uh, with each other. As I said earlier in 2006, it had supported Hezbollah's victory as they saw it in the campaign against Israel, the first time from their perspective that Israel actually lost uh, a war. On the last day of the war, Hezbollah demonstrated his military powers by firing a number of um, rockets into Israel uh, itself, apparently completely rearmed again. They, 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 the rise of Iran was so profound that as we know now from the WikiLeaks, in 2009, Saudi Arabia actually asked the Americans to cut off, as they put it, the head of the snake. This was the beginning of articulation of this Cold War between Iran and Saudi Arabia and, of course, other forces. Um, nuclear hostility, uh, though may have weakened Iran's economy, nevertheless, it felt at that time that it was able to survive, not just survive the sanctions, but as they continue to put it, that actually turned the sanctions into an opportunity to indigenize industrial development uh, and so on. On the, on the eve of the Arab Spring, let's say, Iran was divided at home. The regime suffered from a huge legitimacy deficit at home, uh, and more broadly, it had abandoned all pretense of pluralism and had set about eradicating all forms of opposition. Uh, and again, if you don't believe me, just follow it in the, in the kind of coverage that <laughs> continues to emanate uh, from Iran. 
Iran was no longer assured of its role and presence in the Levant and the performance of its allies in that context. This is all before the Arab Spring. So when the Arab Spring strikes, Iran is initially very supportive of, of the process of change, and there is good reason for that. First, the uprisings of this scale, though maybe not the type that Iran was expecting, uh, were what Iran had been promising and hoping for since 1979, its own revolution. The uprisings started in Arab states that were closest to the United States and Saudi Arabia. Iran saw it as a shift of power towards it, but away from its adversaries. Fall of Mubarak, in particular, uh, was seen as heralding a new era in the Arab region. Iran saw the, the uprisings in zero-sum terms, in terms of its gain against America and America's allies' losses, but it also saw these in Islamic terms. <coughs> saw this essentially as what it branded them as the Islamic awakening in, in the Arab world. And Bahrain's uprising in particular from March of, of 2011, it was seen in Tehran as a historic moment, an opportunity to turn one of the, goal, the, 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 the oil monarchies away from the GCC and bring it into this so-called widening Shia uh, sphere of influence. But Syria changed everything in my view. Iran's support for the Assad regime was seen as hypocritical uh, and purely self-interested. Iran lost the moral high ground. Iran's geopolitical advantages were being eroded. Hamas's departure from Damascus, high profile as it was, was seen as a weakening of Iran's so-called resistance front. And the Syrian crisis galvanized Saudi Arabia and its allies into action, something that Iran was not anticipating or indeed expecting. Iran stood isolated in the region, virtually the only country apart from the Maliki government in Iraq in support in some form of the, the Syrian regime. But also Turkey's strong position further uh, exposed Tehran's Achilles heel. Turkey, a democratic but Islamist country, mobilized it, it, its diplomatic services in support of the Arab uprisings and where Iran was anticipating to be the, the, the champion, if you like, of, of the Arab, Arab the, the transition countries. It was the, the Turkish leaders who were being welcomed on the red carpet as the allies and the supporters of, of these new regimes. So while Iran's revolution may have provided the moral and indeed the political fiber for the Arab uprisings, it is ironic that the region's only Islamic Republic, a revolutionary one at that, seems to have been frozen out of all of the newly emerging regimes. Iran has no say, or indeed role, in influencing the direction of travel into transition countries, or any say whatsoever in the construction of the new polities, or indeed the regional, the regional dynamics of power. While Islamist forces, Egyptian, Tunisian, Libyan, have had direct contact with Iran and Iranian leaders, Islamist hostility towards Iran from Kuwait, Bahrain, Syria, Jordan, Yemen, Morocco is also on the rise. Then there is the larger geopolitical dimension of the uprisings and the role in the changing balance of power that I want to focus on before finishing. These are both unpredictable, but also they happen to be unexpected ways of manifesting themselves as well. If we were to do a quick assessment, as, as Tony Cordesman will have it, in the changing balance of power, then this is what I suspect would be, would, would be our, 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 our uh, unfolding map. First, 
that Iran has found in Turkey a formidable soft power uh, counterpart. Um, it is highly popular in, in the region. It can openly uh, present a democratic system. It has a strong economy. It is part of the G20. But also, <coughs> most profoundly of all, it has found a partnership with the Arab Sunni states of Saudi Arabia, of Qatar, but also with the transition uh, countries. Again, Egypt uh, and Libya and Tunisia. Secondly, Saudi Arabia is now the champion of a, a new camp in the Arab region in ways that Saudi Arabia has never been uh, in that position. And it is standing very much in front of, of Iran in terms of trying to shape and, and create uh, alliances um, in, 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 the, in, in the region. The Islamist majority regimes um, are not in the same camp as Iran. Uh, they are not anti-American. And even their anti-Zionism is somewhat questioned. Given, given their, their behavior. Iran's gains, therefore, in terms of the Islamic awakening, remain somewhat uh, cursory. But also, if you dig deep, the resistance front, in many ways, is also increasingly vulnerable to the Arab Spring. Hamas's departure from Damascus in the way that it did is very significant. But so too, Hamas's desire to get much more closer to within the umbrella of the Muslim Brotherhood, which is now legitimate, which is now pluralistic, it is now representative. For Hamas, much rather to be part of a much, much broader uh, process of change than isolated uh, uh, sitting in the dust in Gaza. Also, the Muslim Brotherhood seems to be creating a new Arab center around which are other Arab states uh, coalescing. Thirdly, Syria, Iran's only Arab ally for the best part of 30 years, is no longer a reliable or indeed a strong ally. Um, Syria's vulnerability is Iran's vulnerability, and also that is married to Hezbollah's isolation. Remember, only 2006, the <coughs> Hezbollah leadership were having the photographs paraded around the streets of Cairo as the new champions of the Arab world. Today, death to Hezbollah, death to Iran are actually common chance in so many Arab, uh, Arab cities and Arab capitals. But also, exposure of the resistance front leaves Iran vulnerable in terms of its supply chains uh, into the Levant. And that tallies rather nicely with what Amnon was saying about the way in which the Iranian-Israeli relationships are both changing in the constant Arab Spring, but also in a, in a very unpredictable way, and ironically, both seem to be getting rather weaker as a consequence of, of the Arab Spring. Having said all this, and I'm finishing now, to draft change in the region, it is a historic irony that in the context of the Arab Spring and Iran's own discontented population, the potential for democratic change may largely depend on the ongoing regional developments, Syria in particular, rather than Iran's ability to shape or indeed provide the thrust for a new direction of change in the region. Thank you very much, and apologies for the coffee. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Thank you, Toby, for the invitation. Um, I guess um, I would begin by saying a couple of things. Um, one is that um, I agree with Anoush uh, and disagree with Amnon uh, on uh, Iran's um, relative power in the region uh, at this point. I think that we are seeing a weakened Iran, uh, not a strengthened Iran at the moment, and that's why or at least that's an important reason why we see Iran 
at the table uh, in Istanbul and going on to Baghdad on May 23. Iran tends to come to the table uh, when it's weak or make offers as in 2003 when it perceives itself to be weak uh, rather than strong. I mean, Anusha's gone over most of the, the reasons uh, why Iran is weakened at the moment. I would just add to that that nowhere um, in the time I spent in Tunisia in Libya, uh, in Egypt, at Tahrir Square, or in the streets of Tunis, or in Benghazi. Nowhere uh, did one hear anybody uh, talking about Tehran, the revolution of 1979. Uh, no, these uprisings are about getting to more open, accountable, representative uh, societies. They are not about uh, recreating new forms of despotism, be they theocratic uh, or secular. So um, as far as um, the brotherhood or as far as the populations of these countries are concerned, um, the dogma of 1979 is, is a dead dogma. Dead dogmas have their diehards. There are still entrenched interests behind this dogma in Tehran, but the resonance uh, of Iran in the region is much reduced. Moreover, uh, it has lost um, a number of very easy targets. It was very easy for um, Tehran to attack the um, Western uh, stooges uh, in uh, Cairo and elsewhere, Mubarak, Ben Ali. These were extremely easy targets uh, for Tehran. They've lost them. And most dramatically, as Anush pointed out, its most important ally in the region uh, the um, Assad regime in Syria uh, is under uh, considerable threat. I think Iran uh, feels itself to be more isolated, uh, more vulnerable um, than in many years. That doesn't necessarily reduce the decibels of its rhetoric, but if you look at Iran at all closely, you will see that throughout the last decades, its rhetoric and actions have been far apart. The rhetoric tends to be soaring, the actions uh, tend to be prudent. Um, the second point I'd just like to make at the outset before looking a little more closely at Iranian-American relations and what's going on with that, which is what I'll focus most of my remarks on, the second is simply that um, Iran is a country I uh, have deep feelings about. Um, those feelings uh, relate to what I witnessed in 2009 on two um, separate visits. Uh, I've never seen anything uh, like, uh, in alas, a rather long journalistic career at this point, I have never seen anything like uh, what happened in Tehran on June 15, 2009, uh, three days after the fraudulent election there. Um, we all went down to the avenue between uh, Enkelab and Azadi squares, Enkelab revolution, Azadi freedom, uh, aptly enough, uh, with fear in our hearts. Nobody knew what would happen, and there was a great deal of fear in the air because Tehran had been transformed overnight from a festive city to a city of fierce and brutal repression with women being clubbed before one's eyes to the street, uh, bodies lying around bleeding all over the place and I have never seen uh, such an almost surreal transformation of a city anywhere as if some puppeteer had suddenly declared okay guys uh, the party's over I hope you enjoyed that uh, now we get 
the real thing. So we all went down there um, with fear in our hearts, and, and you came out onto that avenue, and you felt, my God, this is really happening. Um, and you know, conservative estimates put the number of people in the street that day at close to two million. And I will ask myself, to the end of my days, what would have happened under more forceful leadership if Musavi, indeed, I think if his wife had been leading rather than he, this might have happened. If Musavi had said, what do you do if confronted by two million people? If Musavi had said that day, now we march on the presidential palace, you can kill 100 people, maybe 150. What do you do with two million people? Uh, the Iranian leadership, as Anoush pointed out, was in complete disarray at that point. They'd invited hundreds of journalists to come see this before trying to throw us all out immediately after the election, and I was luckily able to stay for 12 days. But um, Iran was on a razor's edge. Um, don't let anyone, ever, for about a week, it was on a razor's edge. It could have gone either way. And those forces, those feelings, those ideas, <laughs> Uh, have not disappeared from Iran. They've been in Iran since, uh, I would say, since the country first rose against the Qajar dynasty in 1905. The desire for some kind of more representative government allied with Iran's deep faith um, still exists, and it's there beneath the surface. And it's one reason, I think, for patience and prudence in dealing with Iran. Any monolithic portrait of Iran is wrong. Um, and I've tried often uh, to write this and to write that Iran is a repressive and brutal state but not a totalitarian state and not a monolithic state like Saddam's Iraq to say that there have been fluctuations in the degrees of oppression to point out that Iran has along with Turkey the largest Jewish population in the Muslim Middle East uh, to point out that the revolution has many failings, but there are four million kids in college in Iran at the moment, more than half of them women. To try in any way, as I think I've tried, for better or worse, in several columns uh, in the United States to do that, um, is uh, to tread a fairly uh, tempestuous path because the um, view of Iran which holds that uh, any nuanced remark on Iran, cries of Chamberlain immediately erupt uh, from certain quarters. Um, if you challenge the view that Iran is somehow a recreation of, of Hitler's Germany, uh, you're very quickly exposed to very fierce, uh, consistent, um, and relentless um, um, attacks. Uh, we can talk more about that later. So what's going on right now uh, between Iran uh, and the United States? Um, I think we're at a very um, interesting juncture. Uh, there's no relationship that's more paranoid in the world. Uh, it's the world's most paranoid relationship. Um, as you know, this has many uh, sources. Um, from the Iranian side, um, it's the US-backed, US and British-backed coup toppling Mossadegh, <coughs> uh, su support for Saddam in the Iran-Iraq war, um, during which there was, as you know, uh, gassing of Iranians with chemical weapons which the West helped provide. Saddam uh, Bush's uh, extremely unfortunate 2002 axis of evil speech, the presence of US forces on the periphery of Iran, the non-acknowledgement of Iranian um, help at Bonn and elsewhere after, uh, after 2001. Um, and on the US side, um, there's 
the hostage taking of 1979, still something very deep in the American psyche. This was the first time that Americans had seen armed Islamic radicals and saw them for 444 days on Walter Cronkite's news broadcast. There wasn't any cable TV uh, at the time. Everyone was watching uh, the same thing. Um, the history since the revolution of Iran involvement in some uh, terrorist acts, less in the past decade, uh, much less the Ahmadinejad speeches, the unconscionable things he said about <coughs> Israel. Uh, this is an atmosphere of absolutely ferocious uh, mistrust uh, between the two countries. And I think John Limbert, uh, a former hostage, uh, summed up uh, the situation uh, best. He said that um, Americans uh, see Iranians as, quote, devious, mendacious, fanatical, violent, and incomprehensible while Iranians, uh, or Iran at least, sees Americans as, quote, belligerent, sanctimonious, godless and immoral, materialistic, calculating, bullying, exploitative, arrogant, and meddling. So that's ground zero of, you know, what's going on in uh, Istanbul and will uh, continue uh, in um, Baghdad uh, on May 23. It's not a very hopeful starting point, is it? But um, I think it's very important when you have a psychotic relationship, when you have non-communication over 30 years, when you have a situation where a generation and a half of State Department officials have basically not been allowed to speak to Iranians, where you have uh, Congress pushing for the Iran Threat Reduction Act, Orwellian name, for something that would make it illegal uh, to speak to Iranians, even the, the decision to continue uh, in Baghdad is a huge achievement. Hallelujah. We've got through one round of talks, and there's going to be another one. Uh, that may not appear like much, um, but believe me, uh, it is something um, in the circumstances. Um, what is... Uh, what, is one, what is one to make of this um, Iranian nuclear program? Um, it's been going on a long time. It's been going on for decades. Uh, Pakistan went from zero to a bomb in uh, 10 years. Uh, and Iranians, Iran, this regime, the Islamic Republic, in my observation of it at least, is most at home in a zone of of ambiguity, of ambivalence, uh, of inertia. Um, the nuclear program serves a very important domestic um, purpose, political purpose, for a dead dogma, for a fraying regime. It is a rallying point of national pride. It's the equivalent of Mossadegh's uh, nationalization in the 1950s of the oil industry. It plays also an external purpose as an assertion of Iranian power, importance, uh, influence in the region. But has Iran actually, after all this preparatory work, enriching first to 3 to 5 percent, now enriching a little uranium to almost 20 percent, uh, fiddling around with trigger, trigger mechanisms, uh, producing more long-range missiles, is it, has it actually made any push to put this all together? Well, according to U.S., and other Western intelligence agencies, no. And the basic debate on Iran is, uh, are these people, as Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel argued, are they messianic, 
apocalyptical uh, leaders who uh, would not hesitate to launch a nuclear missile against uh, Israel if they ever had one? Or are they, on the contrary, if you look at their actions, actually quite pragmatic and much more comfortable in this zone of ambiguity than throwing out the IAEA and uh, rushing for a bomb? Well, I subscribe uh, to the latter view on the basis of what I've observed of this regime. Remember, Ayatollah Khamenei, what is his title? He is the guardian of the revolution. He's in a conservative business. In the end, Khamenei is judged on whether or not he preserves the Islamic Republic. And if Iran were to throw out the IAEA, if it were to put together all the elements of this uh, stop-go crab walk of a nuclear program, um, it knows very well that the likelihood that Israel and the United States together would attack Iran becomes extremely high. Indeed, I would argue inevitable. Sometimes the whole Iran debate seems to me to be a false debate because I don't believe that any U.S. president, let alone Israel, at least in the current configuration in the Middle East, could allow Iran to actually move to production of a nuclear bomb. It would be too dramatic and important a shift in the strategic equation and too immediate a threat uh, to Israel for any U.S. president, President Obama, Romney, or any other, uh, to accept. But so long as Iran has not made that move, uh, it is very important, in my view, uh, to pursue the nego negotiations. And I have never believed, contrary to many pundits, that Israel would go it alone against Iran. I mean, look at, look at, the, look at what would result. Um, Israel has never been at war with Persians. It's been at war with Arabs. Uh, it would find itself undertaking an extremely risky operation that at best might set back the Iranian program by a couple of years and uh, would send the region into, um, radicalize the whole region at an extremely uh, delicate moment, lock in the most reactionary elements of the Islamic Republic uh, for a generation, uh, expose Israel immediately to attack from Hezbollah, Hamas and others, uh, set back, um, forget about the Arab Spring, I mean, we'd see a wave of uh, unpredictable radicalization throughout the area. And if it went alone against the express wishes of the U.S. administration, it would also uh, create a very damaging rift uh, with the United States. So I don't believe that in the current circumstances um, that is going to happen. Um, I think I'll conclude um, by looking for a moment um, at the, um, at the talks themselves. Um, you know, what, what chance, there's been so much failure, there's so much suspicion, uh, so much mistrust. Uh, why on earth um, should one think that you know, these talks now going on between the five permanent members of the United Nations, uh, plus Germ of the United Nations Security Council, plus Germany uh, and Iran um, could lead anywhere? And I think if you're betting on it, uh, you'd have to say that the chances of success are low. Um, however, as I outlined at the beginning, um, I do think that um, Iran uh, is, is weakened uh, at this moment and that perhaps there is a greater inclination than before to at least um, explore um, a possible deal which would inevitably, in my view, involve Western acceptance of Iran's right to enrich to low levels, i.e. 3 to 
the levels required for an energy program rather than a military program under vigorous uh, inspection uh, from the IAEA um, in exchange for um, a lifting of sanctions progressively and um, bringing Iran, coaxing Iran um, out of its isolation. Um, I, I think that there's no way to solve this problem in isolation. As I suggested earlier, the nuclear program is not strictly a nuclear program. It is a political program about Iran's place in the Middle East. Iran looks east. It sees a nuclear-armed India, a nuclear-armed Pakistan. It looks north. It sees a nuclear-armed Russia. It looks west. It sees a nuclear-armed Israel. And it says, hey, um, you know, we are in the middle of this region. And uh, it sees itself um, historically uh, with justification as a pivotal power uh, in um, that Middle East. So to deal with the political aspirations of Iran, I think it is entirely insufficient uh, to focus merely on the nuclear program. That it will not be resolved in isolation. We have to somehow get beyond this 30-year impasse. Remember that when China and the United States had the breakthrough of 1972, they agreed, Nixon they agreed on absolutely nothing absolutely nothing when you look at the Shanghai Agreement, except that it was better to talk to each other, to have relations, rather than continue uh, in isolation. And I think any Iranian-US breakthrough would have as dramatic an influence and impact on the global strategic uh, situation as that. I think it's a very remote possibility at this point. But I think we have to bear in mind that you want incrementally to get to an absolutely minimal agreement that could then perhaps open the way to something greater. Well, what, um, I'll conclude with this, what, what's on Iran's wish list, if you like, and what's on the Western wish list? Because it's from balancing somehow these wish lists that you're going to get uh, to something better. That is the only way. If you try and just go back and forth strictly on the nuclear program, I don't think that's going to work. Well, what does Iran want? It wants an end to U.S. and Israeli interference in Iran's internal affairs and external affairs. Uh, it wants to be removed from the list of state sponsors of terrorism. Um, it wants an end to economic and financial sanctions. It wants its frozen assets back. It wants access to peaceful uh, nuclear technologies, recognition of um, its right to pursue uh, the peaceful production of nuclear energy. Uh, recognition of its security interests in the region, uh, recognition of its interests uh, in Iraq, the Shia um, holy sites there, uh, and it wants the West to pursue the MEK, MKO, anti-Iranian terrorists, as, as it would describe them. And what do we want? Well, we want to ensure that the nuclear program um, is entirely for peaceful purposes and in accordance with international standards. Uh, we want Iran to support stabilization in Iraq and Afghanistan. We want it to help rather than hinder a peaceful resolution of the Arab-Israeli uh, conflict. Uh, it, wants, uh, it, to, it wants Iran to stop its brutality and um, observe international standards of human rights, um, end its hateful, unconscionable anti-Israeli and anti-American rhetoric and um, agree to a restoration of diplomatic relations 
with the United States. That's a very long wish list on both sides. And to state the obvious, uh, these are some of the most uh, delicate and difficult uh, issues that you can imagine in terms of international diplomacy. We're definitely not going to get anywhere with jingoistic, uh, chest-thumping um, attacks from one side on the other uh, of the kind that have dominated the discourse of the last 30 years. It's nice to see the reaction to former Prime Minister Olmert of Israel's uh, speech in New York recently in which he described Prime Minister Netanyahu and Defense Minister Barak as messianic and misguided on Iran. Cries of Chamberlain immediately went up and um, he was dismissed as betraying uh, Israeli interests. Um, and, you know, similarly on the Iranian side, um, uh, when uh, Iranians question the anti-American and anti-Israeli discourse of led by Hamenei and question this pillar of the revolution, which is Marg Ba America, Marg Ba Israel, which you hear every Friday, intoned with all the passion of Muzak. I mean, it means nothing to Iranians anymore. It's, it's, it's a hangover. Um, to break these taboos uh, is extremely uh, difficult, and it's unlikely it will be achieved, but there's nothing more important uh, on the global agenda today, in my view. Thank you. Right. Um, thanks very much to our three speakers who've given us a great deal to talk about and to think about. Um, before I open it up to questions, a few points. We've got to stop exactly at 8 o'clock, or one of our panelists will miss his train, and he'll never forgive me. Uh, secondly, there are people with microphones in, in rather nice red shirts around the edges of the audience. You put your hand up, I, I, I indicate, and then you speak. But please, there's a lot of people in the audience, and we've got 35 minutes, so short questions or very pithy points more than a second, third, or fourth lecture. Right, who would like to? Yes, you, sir. <laughs> the man with the uh, lumberjack shirt on in there. Yeah. Um, Do you want to stand up? No, not really. Uh, <laughs> uh, one reading of um, Olmert and Diskin and uh, Dagan coming out against Netanyahu is that there's fissures at the top of uh, the kind of Israeli intelligence, security and political structures. But is another reading not of the seriousness, uh, seriousness with which these men see um, Barak and Netanyahu. And instead of it being ki kind of a cause for hope, in fact, it's a kind of a point towards just how far along uh, Netanyahu and Barak are in their planning and decision making. Thank you. Right. We'll hold that course and we'll have another couple of questions, if there are any. Yes, sir. You right down at the front. Hello, first of all, thank you for the talk. Secondly, I just wanted to know, uh, with the you know, current ba uh, balance of power in the Middle East and the uh, possible closing of relations between Iran and the United States, uh, who do you see as opposed to this uh, closing of relations, and what are the chances of some Persian Gulf states, such as Saudi Arabia, sabotaging such closeness? Thank you. Excellent. And the third? Yes, ma'am. Thank you very much. Um, I've just read on the Washington Post editorial t today that uh, the United States 
uh, has lost a lot of influence because it gave the aid to Egypt uh, recently in March. I just wanted to know what you guys think in the last couple of uh, months, how strong the United States influence is specifically in Egypt in terms of um, dictating things the way it used to do in the past and how it does it now, how, how it's changed. So it lost influence with who? Egypt. With yep. the government of Egypt. The government of Egypt because of the change. Okay, so three questions. One on uh, fissures at the top of the Israeli ruling elite or warnings that Netanyahu may be much further down the line than we think. The possibility of Saudi stopping Iran-US negotiations or rapprochement and a decline in US influence with the current ruling elite in Egypt. Who wants to go first? Well, we'll go in opposite, I suppose. So Amnon first, and then we'll go to Anush and Roger. Okay. Um, I think, first of all, about the fissures in, in the Israeli um, top, um, I think basically what you were suggesting in the second part of your question is, is correct. I mean, um, it seems unlikely that three, especially the former heads of Mossad, former head of Mossad Dagan, and then very recently the former head of the internal security services, Yuval Diskin, who was rather quiet in the past year, uh, would suddenly come out. Dagan was, of course, very active on sort of um, on every really stage he could get to warn against an attack on Iran. He went on record saying that it would be a stupid thing to do. Um, um, so I think you know the it, the sensible reading would be exactly what what you were said. And I think that also comes against the backdrop. I mean, nobody knows if the Israelis are going to attack, but it seems to me that. By linking, especially by Netanyahu, Barak has always been, especially in the last 18 months, quite forceful in always maintaining what he calls all options on the table. But especially this linkage that Netanyahu made on very serious podiums between the question of Iran and the Holocaust um, and associating himself so closely with this issue, to my mind, seems to suggest that he at least was closer than before, uh, at least if not making up his mind, which nobody knows, at least making the threat seem more credible or not. Um, I think what you also see is that there has been, uh, uh, there was evidently a rather intense debate within the Israeli former security political elite between the former chief of staff, the former head of Mossad and the head of the security services and the two key decision makers. Um, those three are out. Um, one of the key persons which has not been mentioned here yet is the current Israeli chief of staff. And he came with a very important interview um, in the Israeli Independence Day saying that he thinks that sanctions are actually bearing fruit, Iranians are not necessarily going to go forward and so on and so forth. So this whole sort of also toing and froing was also partly yeah. instigated um, by this remark and the two sides sort of trying each to gain, to gain more ground. Uh, what I think we are quite clear at least now is that this debate is much more open in Israel than it was before. Two years ago, you know, it was almost Almost like, yes, attacking Iran, good, we have to do it, end of story. Now it's very, very different, not only within the policy circles, but also in, in the public sphere, particularly due to the interventions of these um, 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 three individuals. Um, I don't know if you want us to take sort of all the three questions. Maybe you guys want to come on on this question, and then we'll do a second round Anush. as well of the other questions. Uh, I agree with you very much. I think it, <clears throat> it must be incredibly difficult sitting, sitting in, in Israel deciding how to counter Iran's nuclear program in the face of what, what some, you know, hawks see there as, as American weakness and European intransigence in terms of reacting to it and are impatient to see that the, the sanctions bear fruit. But I think, I think you're right, Abnon. I think they, the, the medium game that the Obama administration is playing in terms of allowing the sanctions to really develop root as they are doing is the way that the, the 
the middle ground Israel is now beginning to swing towards because the prospects of war in the context of what Roger said of not knowing what the end result is going to be is Israel as far as I know has never gone to war without being absolutely certain that it can see the end game in this context they cannot uh, nobody can and, and, and so the sanctions have become the main game in town and if the European threat of of severing oil imports from Iran from, from July onwards becomes a reality post-May talks in Baghdad, then I think they will gain even further ground in that context and put the process of conflict further back. But also, the Arab Spring is the, another backdrop in which both Iranian, American, and Israeli decision makers have to look at all of these currents. While I have the floor, just on, on, on question from, from the front row, this is the old grand bargain argument. Um, before 2005, I think the grand bargain, what well, no, before 2003, the grand bargain had prospects. Post 2003 and rejection of Iran's letter um, to, to the White House, I think has become, and, and of course also the axis of evil has become less promising. But after 2005, four, five rounds of sanctions, more unilateral sanctions from the US and European Union, I don't think anybody can really seriously perceive the makings of a grand bargain coming out of the next two, three, four rounds of negotiations. And whether the Saudis would block it or not, the Saudis had to take a lot of flack some years back uh, at the height of Khatami's presidency to draw closer to Iran. All of the neighbors, the Emirates in particular, were incensed about this closeness. So I don't think Saudis are averse to the idea of having normal relations with Iran, so long as they can be assured that Iran is going to be pursuing what is what they see now, a highly militaristic agenda. Um, if anything, they would rather have normal relations between the US and Iran, because that reduces their concerns about a military confrontation actually with the smoke going straight in their eyes rather than anybody else's. Roger, feel free to range, but let's not lose the dropping U.S. influence in Egypt either. Okay, I'd like to, if I could, just start with the, the first question. Um, I mean, I have no doubt that um, you know, there is a fully-fledged, detailed um, plan for an Israeli attack um, on Iran's nuclear facilities. I mean, obviously, the political leadership of Israel will have asked um, the IDF to, to draw that up and, and I have no doubt that it exists um, um, just as I'm sure similar plans exist in the United States. The, the question of course in Israel is uh, you know, would, would, that, uh, would, that, would a decision be made to act on that and up to now despite years of saying that the red line is six months away, the red line is six months away, uh, the red line has constantly uh, receded and um, no decision to do so. It is a very, very grave decision, and um, the Israeli leadership um, obviously is, is, is conscious of that. Um, I don't know that, um, you know, it's a delicate moment. There are talks on. I would imagine the U.S. is using what influence it has, and the U.S. has quite a lot of influence to um, encourage debate in Israel and encourage what friends uh, it might have in Israel uh, to speak up if they have uh, reservations about um, a possible uh, attack and the fact that Dishkin, uh, formerly Shimbet Head and Dagan um, and Olmert uh, and the Chief Star, all these people have 
have spoken now um, may not be a coincidence. I wouldn't myself take it as a sign that um, Netanyahu was about to, to pull the trigger. Um, I don't think so. Uh, you know, a minor uh, recent polls show that a majority of Israelis would back an attack on Iran if done in conjunction with the United States. Uh, but a minority, uh, only a minority of Israelis would back such an attack without American support. Um, Israelis aren't crazy, you know, and nor is the government of Israel crazy. I mean, you know, uh, the American judgment is that the Iranian program is, is not at a point uh, where this would be justified and that room and scope exist um, for, for negotiation. Now, maybe, uh, you know, Israelis are tired of hearing that, but um, the fact is that um, the Iranian program has been um, a very uh, slow one. Um, on who opposes the, um, you know, who opposes such a rapprochement, if indeed uh, it's possible, between uh, Iran and the United States, I mean, I think just as a sort of hypothetical exercise, it's quite interesting to ask what the Israeli view would be of that. I mean, what would, and again, it's, it's, it's very hypothetical because it's very unlikely to happen, but what, what would Israel think of, um, of a U.S.-Iranian rapprochement? I think it's far from clear that this would be a happy occurrence as, as viewed from Jerusalem. Um, after all, when Prime Minister Netanyahu came uh, to Washington on his last visit, there was no, zero, discussion of um, the real issue in Israel, which is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, at least what I view as the real issue. And um, so Iran, whatever else it has been, has been a very powerful um, distraction from that issue. It is taken not only off the front burner, but off the back burner, and you know, so far off the burner that it's not even really spoken about anymore. So. You know, I think that's an interesting question. I mean, clearly there would be Saudi reservations for, um, you know, for obvious reasons. What would it say about then the Saudi? It would be a game changer. You know, everything would be would be up in the air. So there are a lot of people who you know prefer or know the rules of the game, a bit like the Arab Spring. And those who prefer know the rules of the game as it was are going to be uh, made uneasy by it. Um, so and then finally on on Egypt, um, yeah, I'm not. The question is, has the United States lost influence with the military, with SCAF, is that? Uh, maybe, um, but I would say, you know, good riddance. I mean, I think it's a very important breakthrough to have, you know, if you think that until the fall of Mubarak, there was no contact, zero, between, officially anyway, between the United States and the Muslim Brotherhood, um, that is not a good thing. I mean, I think it is very important. Uh, to have um, uh, channels of communication open between a major, the major um, political movement in um, Egypt right now um, and the United States. This may make some people uneasy, but the Brotherhood, like Enada in, in Tunisia, is changing. In my view, the big debate in, in the Arab world right now is, <coughs> is between, you know, how do you reconcile representative government, more democratic systems with, with Islam, with, with Islamic faith. Uh, I don't think uh, young Arabs um, are looking for a theocratic solution. And I think the AKP in Turkey is a much more interesting model uh, for the Brotherhood than anything going on in Tehran, just as it is for Enad. In other words, to be a conservative uh, party of r religious roots that is 
doing democracy, you know, that is doing modern democracy. And I don't think it's any coincidence that the Brotherhood's name, the name it has chosen, uh, if you quickly skim over it, it sounds like the same name uh, as the AKP in Turkey, because that is the way uh, a lot of Arabs are thinking. They want, you know, what did I hear more than anything in Tahrir Square or other places? It was, it's our turn, it's our turn. You know, we want to be part of the modern world. And um, also, it's about agency. I mean, Arabs kept saying to me, it's the first time in my life that I feel that what I do might actually have an impact. And the Brotherhood, as a mass movement in Egypt, can't lose sight of that any more than Enada can uh, in Tunisia. And I think those who argue that there's been no revolution are missing something fundamental. The revolution in the Arab world is here. It's in people's minds. Their minds have changed. There is a revolution in the Arab mind, and, and that revolution is about agency. It's about taking control of their own lives. And I think, in the long run, that is a very positive and constructive development uh, for the region. Will there be ups and downs? Will there be violence? Will it be difficult? Yes. Will it take a generation? Yes. But it's necessary. Right, we've got a question up in the balcony there. Yeah, the gentleman on the first row with his hand up. Hello. Um, please excuse me for arriving late. I missed the first part by uh, uh, Dr. Amon. Uh, I've heard most of the, what uh, Professor Estami have said and uh, Mr. Mr. Dodge. Um, uh, Mr. Uh, Professor Estami, you, you mentioned that Turkey is democratic uh, with a strong economy. Uh, Try telling that to the Kurds. Try and tell that to the uh, Armenians. Their, their, their churches have been desecrated and destroyed. You, uh, try and uh, tell that to the young women who suffer at the hand of the so-called government as, uh, in respect to the honor killing. That, if that's what is your concept of dem democracy, I would like to change. Uh, with, uh, would you, you say... So very uh, briefly, I think you've had one question. I will do, I will do. Please, bear with me. Bear with me. Only for yes. a very brief Bear with me, uh, Mr. Dodge. You talk about the paranoid relationship between America and Iran. Clearly, you've forgotten about Cuba. It's been going 50 years. Yes? But uh, you, you speak about arms to Iraq. You speak uh, uh, scant regards to Iraq and... And, and what's happening in Iraq. What's happening now in Iraq has been taken over by the fundamentalists bought in from Iran to overrule the Iraqis and now we are the subject of, of uh, subjugation by the Iranian rule of al-Maliki. Okay, we've got that as well. That's two questions. Thank you very much. Sir, you don't have... In view of the uh, bad, and if one believes what one reads, appallingly bad personal relationship between Obama and Netanyahu, what kind of leverage does the president actually have with Netanyahu? And really following on from that, in view, because connected with that, of course, is the increasing polarization, or it's not so much polarization as a swing to the right in Israeli politics, and uh, as an incident of that, obviously, I would mention Livni's removal as a leader of Kadima and a replacement by a hardliner. I mean, isn't the most that Obama can hope for is that basically things stay in a relatively even keel until November the 6th? 
which is the crucial day in his calendar. Thanks. And the final one on this round, the gentleman with the glasses there. Thank you. If you keep your hand up, they can bring the mic to you. Hi. Um, if we presume that Syria is declining and is going to fall, how important is this ever-growing unity that Iran has with Iraq? And how is that going to shape mm. the shift in the Middle East? Excellent. Three questions. The lack of democracy in Turkey, I suspect, would be one. Um, what's going on in Iraq and its relations with Iran is another. The polarization of, of Israeli politics and the extremely bad relationship between Obama and Netanyahu. Roger, why don't you start? We'll, we'll first. Uh, well, on gentleman's question, you know, glass half full, glass half empty, is Turkey, uh, is Turkey a, a perfect and peaceful society? No, but if you, uh, if you give me the option of having Egypt uh, 10 years from now where Turkey is today, uh, I'll take it. When I, when I visit Turkey, um, I have the feeling of, uh, of being in a, um, of being in a, in a reasonable, in an open society. So, um, and that's important to me. So, and it's important to Turks. Uh, so, um, is it perfect? No, but um, I think Turkey is a success story on that again. Um, the leverage. Um, well, I think when the President of the United States says to the Prime Minister of Israel, Mr. Prime Minister, we do not want you to attack Iran now or in the next several months uh, because we have a negotiating track open, we believe Iran is weaker, etc., etc., etc. I believe that the Prime Minister of Israel takes note of that, takes very serious note of that, and would be very unlikely uh, unless in the most extreme circumstances to, uh, on such a matter of war and peace, um, and we've learned over the last 10 years how easy it is to get into wars and how hard it is to get out of them and how expensive they are, um, both in terms of one's treasure, but even more important in terms of lost lives, uh, I believe that there is leverage. I believe that um, the Prime Minister of Israel Listens. I mean, can would you know? Uh, is is the United States going to change policy toward um, Israel, castigate Israel in some way? No. If if we what we mean by leverage is that, then I agree with you that uh, in some senses the leverage is more limited than perhaps one would like to see. But I I think um, that leverage exists, and I agree with you that what President Obama wants um, is to get. Uh, to November 6 um, with at least the status quo and if possible some incremental improvement some incremental improvement in um, relations um, uh, with Iran that give him a means to say to Israel you see um, we are beginning to make some headway let's give this process uh, a little more time and I'll leave the um, Syria, uh, loss of Syria, gaining Iraq question to my colleagues here. Okay. Yeah, I mean, first of all, maybe just to add about the Obama leverage, I, I completely agree with Roger, and I think uh, even if you look at the interview that um, Defense Minister Barak gave, very elaborate interview, which was published in the New York Times a couple of months ago, he stated a number of conditions that would um, decide whether Israel attacks or not. One of them was international support, which really means in Israel, Washington support. 
And the reason for that, obviously, is that you know Washington is still providing Israel with the key material political support. Israel, arguably, would not be able to, or let's put it another way, Israel's ability to withstand a counterattack is highly dependent on American support, especially if it's if it's long and enduring with all the economic and military um, implications that that has. Um, there's also the case that within Israeli politics, the relations with the United States is very is a very important political currency. And if you fall out with the United States on such a key issue, um, you know this is something that any Israeli politician knows will, will, there will be a price to pay. And and finally, going back to the question here of the, of the lady earlier on about American influence in the region. With all the setbacks of Iraq and the, Ameri and, you know, the economic crisis and so on, you know, the U.S. is still a major player in the region. I mean, I would even in Egypt, which really for Israel is a key strategic issue at the moment, where Egypt goes with the Camp David agreement, with how you control everything that's coming from the Sinai, from Gaza, and all the rest of it. You know, the U.S. is still a huge provider of aid and military um, um, support to Egypt. Um, I think it, it was quite important in the ultimately in the run-up to the ousting of Mubarak. Um, and it's not a coincidence that the Muslim Brotherhood's leadership have made it quite clear that they want relationships with the U.S. And obviously the Egyptian military is still dependent on, on U.S. support. So for all of these reasons, I think the Americans still have huge um, leverage um, um, on Israel. And add to that the fact that Netanyahu, if there was ever an American-Israeli prime minister, this is it. Netanyahu is the guy. He was, you know, he studied in the States. He grew up many of the years in the States. He's very much sort of in tune with American politics, unless he can, you know, and, and unless he could really somehow outflank the president through a political maneuver, which he had done uh, to some extent, at least recently, I, I don't think the Israelis would go, would go it alone. And really what you're seeing here, I think, from Diskin and Dagan and all the rest of it, is shifting, trying to shift the focus from this being only an Israeli-Iranian issue to shifting the focus of Israel being integrated with the broader international community, especially the United States, in trying to resolve, um, in trying to resolve this question of Iran, because they are of the opinion, and this is, I think, what is really implicit in this notion that Barack and Netanyahu are messianic. Them, their sort of millennialism is that they think that Israel um, can sort of go it alone, and this is what people like Dagan and Diskin and Gantz and also Peres, the, the president, I think, are quite convinced that Israel. Um, that Israel really um, um, cannot. Um, I think I'll leave it at that. Maybe I'll refer, revert to Anusha about the question. It'd be nice to get three more questions, and so I'll be very brief, Toby, on, on, on this one. I think the question on Syria is really quite important. Syria is Iran's only strategic partner in, in the region, not just in the Arab world, in the region, its entirety. Relationship with Iraq is somewhat different. So where, where, where Syria to go through regime change what succeeds Assad is going to be profoundly different in, 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 its, in its makeup and also relations with Iran. I don't think they can even agree on Lebanon, Israel, and so on beyond it. Iraq is very much, much closer sphere of influence. It extends Iranian economic, political, cultural route across the Persian Gulf rather than enabling it to project power beyond the region. Syria has been the linchpin of that. And once that changes, it has changed, frankly, uh, then obviously Iran is strategically weaker in that context. Thank you. Uh, two questions down here and one there. Thanks. Okay. As we are talking about the power shift in the Middle East, uh, can you comment on the growing influence of Qatar in the region and its relationship with the Islamist movements in Egypt, Tunisia, Libya, and Algeria? And do you think that Qatar is used as a tool to promote these conservative forces um, because 
these do not pose a challenge to imperialism and neoliberal policies. Excellent. Explaining Gattari foreign policy, you'd be doing me a favor as well. Mm -hmm. uh, you say as well. I wanted to object to this portrayal of um, the U.S.-Iran uh, relationship. And when you describe the, the, psych the psychotic relationship, the paranoid relationship, it's as if it were two mates that had fallen out. That's not the situation. It was not the, you know, the, the Iranians didn't depose and overthrow the President of the United States in 1953. It's laughable to even imagine such a situation. The actual relationship is an imperial power that has dominated that region for 60 years, and Israel has been, it's, it's like the mafia, like Al Capone, and he's got his lieutenant gangsters. Israel is a Rottweiler of the United States and the region. You never mentioned, it's got two or three hundred nuclear missiles. It's, it's refused to join the, non -nuclear, the nuclear non-proliferation pact. It's refused to say it would never use them first. So to sit there and be obsessed about what's the, what, the Iranian, what the Iranians are doing with nuclear development and to ignore that, you're basically putting us in a framework of what's in it for, uh, for our continued domination of that region. That region needs to belong to the people of that region. The United States and Britain need to get out. Got it. Okay, thank you. And the gentleman in the tie there, thanks. And if there are any more, sorry, just before you start, if there are any more questions, this is the last round, so throw your hands up now, sir. I apologize for wearing a tie. Um, a very nice tie at that. Yeah, so do I. <laughs> uh, if Iran were to get nuclear weapons, the great risk is there would be nuclear proliferation. And um, Saudis have said to me that um, Iran might be a a rational actor, but a future Saudi Arabia might not be. And uh, Israel would perhaps be much more worried about a Saudi bomb than an Iranian bomb. Uh, bearing in mind what Netanyahu's political beliefs have been, led by his, his late father, about Israel only being independent on itself in the, in the final resort for its security, under what circumstances do you think that Israel might start to negotiate if surrounded by nuclear states? On a, wep on a weapons free, uh, nuclear weapons free zone. Okay, thank you. Now, two very brief questions here, and then we'll, we'll turn it to the audience, um, to the speakers. We mentioned the American elections coming up, but there's also the prospect of Israeli elections on the horizon, a lot of talk about them being brought forward to later on this year. I was wondering how that would reflect, ref uh, affect the dynamic with Iran. Would they be more likely to strike before the election or afterwards? Got it. And if you just hand it to the woman behind you, and that'll be the last, I'm afraid. Um, just adding to that gentleman's point at the end, um, at what point then is, would or could um, Iran's, um, could it be justifiable for Iran to have nuclear power if it's in this position within the Middle East and it's being threatened and there's countries surrounding it that have nuclear weapons, why can't Iran? Excellent. So three minutes each with four questions. I'll start with Anoush, uh, bring it uh, back to Amnon and then uh, end it with Roger Anoush. So. Very quick. I think there is a lot of conspiracy theories about Qatar's role. Let me couch it in these terms. The Arab world is completely fragmented, leaderless, and there are small countries with huge amount of potential power. Their power is realized through economic muscle, through relationship with the Western powers, and ability projected through Al Jazeera as the case of Qatar. So in a sense, Qatar is fulfilling the ultimate mission of the core Arab states. And it's doing it at a time when it has now realized opportunity to do it without supporting authoritarian regimes. If anything, it is able to continue to build on its alliance with the West and the United States while supporting democratic current in the region. If I was Qatar, I would do the same thing. Um, on, on nuclear weapons, 
What really worries me is this notion, and I'm glad you raised the question of nuclear-free zone, this notion that somehow proliferation is all right. It's not. The fear about what Iran's program is causing is, if you like, simplifying the, the path to proliferation. It's not so much about whether Iran will get nuclear weapons or not. It's about the transparency of its systems, its ability to respond to IEA concerns in a way that satisfies other countries' anxieties and fears. That is where the blockage is. I agree with Roger, Iran may not be anywhere near a nuclear weapon, but it is how it engages with the international community, the international systems which are put in place to try and limit proliferation. If the perception in Saudi Arabia is that Iran is going to get nuclear weapons, then the Saudis will develop a counter position. If the perception in Israel is that Iran has got nuclear weapons, they will never put on the table the 200, 300 plus missiles. Because in this region, you know, you don't have any mechanism of confidence building as it stands now. What you need is a, a degree of confidence in international regimes such as the MPT and the IEA's ability to exercise its, its principal uh, actions and then take it a step back, if you like, towards what would a, 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 if you like, a peaceful Middle East look like. I don't think we are anywhere near that. And the more we talk about not containing Iran's nuclear power, but rather forcing it to comply with international regimes, the better the vocabulary of peace will be, in my view. Thank you. Amnon. Okay, yeah, um, maybe about two points. First of all, about the U.S. Rottweiler um, notion or analogy. I think you should not underestimate, obviously, U.S. and Israeli intervention. I don't think, on the other hand, that you need to overstate it. Uh, and I think perhaps in your comments you, you may have. Um, Israel has obviously sometimes acted belligerently. I would the first, be the first one to agree that that is the case in relation to the Palestinians, certainly in the last 20 years. On the other hand, sometimes it's acted very sensibly. I don't think anybody would remorse the fact that um, you know, Iraq's nuclear reactor was demolished. I don't think anybody would have wanted Assad now to have had perhaps you know, the, the, the prospect of having a nuclear capability of his own. So Israel is in a tough environment, like most countries in this unfortunate reason. In region, sometimes it overacts, sometimes it acts sensibly, and I'd say the same thing for the U.S. And as for the, you know, the right of the indigenous people, um, Jews at least, and the Jews in Israel feel that they are very much part of that fabric. Um, so they at least would see themselves as having a right to exist in that region, as well. Um, in relation to the question about negotiation, negotiating on a nuclear-free zone, um, unfortunately, I think that you know the Israelis and most other key countries in the region would not be disposed to negotiate. What I think that would emerge is not only a nuclear race, but actually a multi-tiered nuclear race. Because in the case of Israel, you're not only looking, looking about the ability to, to have a first strike capability, but also to launch the second strike capability. So I think you're looking here really about a multi-tiered nuclear race emerging in a region that has much less instruments than the two superpowers had during the Cold War to manage nuclear proliferation. The Cold War generated 13 nuclear alerts, six of them emerged from the Middle East, and my suspicion is that, or, or I suspect that should we enter into a nuclear race, it would be a much more volatile and dangerous one than the one that we even experienced during the Cold War. Very briefly on the question of elections, Menachem Begin attacked the Iraqi nuclear reactor in the run-up to his election. Um, nonetheless, I think that the question of Israeli elections is, is immaterial in this sense. Um, the, the three conditions that have been iterated and I think are quite reasonable to, to look through are these. Whether Iran crosses 
into the threshold where really they have passed certain degrees of, new, of uranium enrichment, that their program is irreversible. Secondly, whether Israel gets support, especially from the US. And thirdly, most importantly, whether an attack, whether eliminating the Iranian nuclear program is actually feasible militarily. These, I think, will be the parameters that will actually determine whether or not Israel uh, will attack with or without international support. Roger, your final thoughts in three minutes. <clears throat> well, with respect, I did mention the overthrow of Mossadegh in 1953, and I mentioned that Israel were nuclear arms, so I don't know why you said that I didn't mention them. I, I mentioned both of them, and of course you can go on about uh, U.S. colonial <coughs> uh, presence in the Middle East for decades, but what's, what we're talking about is what's happened in the 33 years since the Iranian Revolution. I mean, that is the issue, and to say there aren't uh, grievances on the American side, but only grievances. I mean, after all, the hostages in the embassy were taken for 444 days. That is a legitimate U.S. grievance. And there are many other legitimate U.S. grievances over Iranian acts. So uh, I think what you're dealing with is an atmosphere of extreme uh, mistrust on both sides. And that's what has to be overcome. I mean, to say, oh, the West has to get out of the Middle East, well, what does that mean to begin with? And to characterize um, Israel as a Rottweiler. Um, yeah, personally, I find that objectionable. I don't think it, it gets us anywhere at all. Um, I mean, if Israel's a Rottweiler, what is a state that uh, rounds up hundreds, um, before my eyes, hundreds, indeed thousands of people protesting because there was a fraudulent election and they wanted their votes to be counted, uh, kills up with 300 of them, subject, subjects dozens of them uh, to rape, uh, tortures others, um, what, 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 do you, what, do you, what do you call, what do you call, I didn't say that. What do you call that state? Um, I've been a very forceful cr critic of, of what happened in Gaza and indeed uh, of um, Israeli policy toward the Palestinian conflict in general. Um, on, uh, but I object to those kinds of characterizations of Israel because I think they take you down a very slippery slope indeed. Um, on, um, on, the, on the nuclear proliferation in the region, well I think you know, we're dealing in a series of, of hypotheticals here and uh, yeah, I don't think um, Iran is going to go that last step toward a bomb and if it did I think uh, it would probably be attacked. Um, but if you did get a nuclear armed Iran then the first thing that would happen would be you would get a check for several billion dollars from Riyadh to uh, Pakistan, uh, asking the Pakistanis to uh, to make them a bomb, and um, I expect that the Pakistanis would oblige. So, uh, you know that, uh, and then um, we are into um, an extremely uh, dangerous uh, situation. I don't. I think the idea of a, of a nuclear free zone in the Middle East is it's a wonderful idea, but until there, there is headway. Uh, on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and uh, until Israel emerges from, um, in my view, its, its exaggerated um, apocalyptical uh, view of itself. Um, uh, the, you mentioned the Holocaust and I think in many ways the Holocaust has become a distorting lens uh, for Israel in, in unfortunate ways um, until um, Israel emerges from that and until the atmosphere in the region um, calms down by several notches, I don't think um, we're going to see Israel um, prepared to move um, in anything like that direction. Overall, I'm not 
Um, I'm pretty pessimistic about Israeli-Palestinian prospects, but I'm not unduly pessimistic about the region. I don't think there will be war with Iran, um, and I do think that uh, we've seen an event or events comparable to what happened in Europe in 1989 uh, in the Arab world, and I think um, 20 years from now uh, there's a good chance that um, these will be better, more democratic societies, and that in turn will uh, improve the prospects of peace with Israel. And that's a wonderful note to end. I've got two things to do. Remind you, you can still get uh, this pamphlet outside, which will explain all the questions you uh, needed answering. And apart from that, much more importantly, I'd like to think, uh, thank our three excellent speakers and indeed the audience for, for the discussion and the debate. Thank you very much.